This episode is brought to you by Wise, the account that helps you manage your money all around the world. I lived overseas for many years, and one of the biggest bottlenecks to international living is money transfers. You want to withdraw money from an ATM to access funds from your American bank account, and you don't realize you're getting hit with a $10 charge every single time you do that. Yeah, that did happen to me. So if you're dining in dollars or want to do business in bot, what a Wise account does is let you send, spend, and receive money in different currencies. Wise is the easiest way to connect all of your finances internationally. This goes from a night out at a tapas bar in Spain to buying a property in the Yucatan. So if you're a digital nomad in Bali or want to send money back to mom, it's simple. And this is all without hidden fees or exchange rate markups. Wise works in over 160 countries, so your money's always at your fingertips. And over half of the transfers get their destination in less time than it takes to listen to this app. Join 16 million customers and learn how a Wise account can work for you by downloading the app or visiting wise.com unplugged. That's wise.com unplugged. One more time, wise.com unplugged. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. History isn't just a bunch of names and dates and facts. It's the collection of all the stories throughout human history that explain how and why we got here. Welcome to the History Unplugged podcast, where we look at the forgotten, neglected, strange, and even counterfactual stories that made our world what it is. I'm your host, Scott Rank. Bruce Lee's most famous dictum was, be formless, shapeless, like water. He argued that water could take on any form, or really whatever the form its container was, could be a teapot, a cup, but it could also resist, like a river carving a canyon or ocean waves pounding cliffs into sand. It could literally move mountains. Similar to water, Bruce Lee refused to be captured by the Eastern and Western cultures that he grew up in, but he flowed between and shaped both. Lee revolutionized Marvel arts by combining influences from around the world. He was uncommonly determined, physically gifted, and artistically brilliant, and he rose to fame as part of a, if you really look at this from the big picture, a multi-century entanglement between China and the United States, combining Eastern martial arts with Western cinema and celebrity, and the United States' propensity to combine all these different cultures. Today, I'm speaking with Daryl Maida, author of the new book, Like Water, A Cultural History of Bruce Lee. His account looks at the movements and migrations across the Pacific that structured the cultures Bruce Lee inherited, the milieu he occupied, the martial art he developed, the films he made, and the world he left behind. So on the one hand, we look at the huge tectonic shifts that are happening in global culture that produce someone like Lee, but we also zero in on his life and even get into fanboy theories on whether or not he could beat up Muhammad Ali 
and how accurate the depiction of him in the Quentin Tarantino movie Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is accurate. So we're definitely looking at high and low culture here, which in some ways is a fitting tribute to Lee, who moved between many different cultures effortlessly and was an inspiring symbol of innovation and determination with a legacy as the first Asian American global superstar. Lee's life was fascinating, but he was also symbolic of much, much larger trends. There's a lot to get into here, so I hope you enjoyed this discussion with Daryl Maida. You open your book with a description of the climactic scene of Enter the Dragon and discuss how this is a useful analogy for Bruce Lee's real life. Can you describe the scene and how it relates to Lee? Yeah, it's a wonderful scene. It's the conclusion of Enter the Dragon, which was the last film that Bruce Lee completed during his very short life. And in it, he chases Han, the villain, into a hall of mirrors. And in this room, we see endless numbers of refracted images of Bruce Lee and of Han as they slink back and forth, stalking each other. And every so often you see a, a strike and it'll either smash into empty space because either Han or Bruce has, has struck into a mirror image and once in a while it will strike flesh itself. Over time, Bruce comes to the conclusion that he needs to break some of the mirrors because they are misrepresenting the truth to him. They're reflecting not back, not reality, but illusions. One of the things that I really, really like about this scene is that when we think about it as a metaphor for Bruce Lee's life, what it presents to us is an understanding that he was actually a very complex individual, but who is seen often not as himself, but as an image, a reflection of whatever the viewer wants to see. In some ways, Bruce Lee is, uh, is an empty vessel into which many people pour their hopes, their fears, their aspirations. And so part of what I'm trying to do with this book is to smash some of the illusions about Bruce Lee and present him more or less as he was. But because I open the book with this scene, I'm also saying that you should not just simply trust my vision. You should understand that rather than claiming some objective truth about Bruce Lee, what I'm presenting to you is a particular perspective that you can take as, as your own, or you should explore further to see if what I'm telling you is actually true. But what I can say is that Bruce Lee is endlessly fascinating, no matter what perspective you take on him. And I have, you know, I've spent the last 11 years working on this book, and I don't believe that I've even begun to exhaust the number of ways that Bruce Lee can be seen, can be refracted and reflected. It's his own life, which has so much to explore, but it's also what he represents, which depending on how you look at his life, he is the culmination of 400 years of history and what the age of discovery was trying to do. Okay, that sounds really weird, but uh, just uh, uh, the way you unpack this in your book is that 400 years of Chinese European contact through trade, then British colonization of Hong Kong, discovery of gold in California in 1848, Cold War deployment of US troops in Asia, the 1960s counterculture. How does Bruce Lee represent the culmination of these large-scale, multi-century historical forces at work? One of the questions we might ask ourselves is, 
why was there no Bruce Lee before Bruce Lee? What was it about this individual that made him, uh, that enabled him to do things that no other human being in the history of humanity had done? And namely, that's to become the first global superstar to come from outside of the West. And so we might think, well, you know, he was an extraordinary individual. And that's absolutely true. He was an extraordinarily physically gifted, extraordinarily mentally strong and resilient, extraordinarily ambitious. And yet, right, it doesn't seem that that it's possible for an individual simply by dint of his talent and his determination to do something that had never been done before. So when you start to think about Bruce Lee as a historical figure, I think it really becomes apparent that we need to understand where he came from and what enabled him, even as an extraordinary individual, to achieve what he achieved. And in the book, I really make the argument that what makes Bruce Lee Bruce Lee is the emergence of a trans-Pacific world of contact, of trade, of war, of cultural exchange that brought people of different cultures together in ways that were more intimate, closer, sometimes more belligerent, but always in more contact than they had ever been before. And so this really is the beginning of the story. The beginning of the story is the rise of mercantile, trans-Pacific capitalism that brings, for example, a Dutch trader to Hong Kong, where he takes a Chinese woman as his concubine and raises multiracial children. It's the story of colonization, of Great Britain actually uh, forcing China to cede the territory of Hong Kong, and then building a colonial outpost in Hong Kong in which a British system of education and laws was overlaid over deeply Chinese culture, society. And then it's also about the spread of, of mercantile capitalism further across the Pacific into what became the United States. Right? Well, one of the things that I think is endlessly fascinating about this period of history is the strong parallels between the emergence of Hong Kong and the emergence of San Francisco as world cities. They're world cities who are linked by trade, by migration across the Pacific. And each of them comes to the fore, not just for their, you know, for their particular qualities or characteristics, but because they're nodes, they're important nodes in a network of trans-Pacific trade, migration, and contact. And Bruce Lee surfs these waves across the Pacific. He's a person who cannot be pinned down to any one location. You cannot say, the secret of Bruce Lee can be found in Hong Kong. Neither can you say, the secret of Bruce Lee can be found in San Francisco or Seattle or on the West Coast. But indeed, Bruce Lee comes into being because he is part of this trans-Pacific trade, this trans-Pacific migration of people and ideas, goods, across the Pacific, both in the eastward and the westward directions. So when you say that, you know, that Bruce Lee is the culmination of 400 years of history, that's absolutely correct. And it's 400 years of history of movement, the movement of people, the movement of capital, the movement of ideas, the movement of goods, 
and the movement of technologies as well. Bruce Lee surfs on those waves. He embodies those waves. And the world that we live in today is even more interconnected than the world that he lived in. And so for me, not only is he the culmination of 400 years of history, he's also the harbinger of what's to come in the next century. And a little more background for listeners. What Daryl is talking about here is an entire branch of study of Pacific studies where the way we look at history, sometimes it's hard for people not to fall into looking at everything through nation states or empires where all the people behind those borders are homogenous. And the way interaction happens is on a nation state level. And someone in California is the same as somebody from Maine when if you go back decades or centuries, that's very much not the case when people are not interconnected. So meaning that if you look at things through not the nation state framework, but perhaps a Pacific framework, someone who lives on a coastal city in whether California or China could have means of contact through the shipping industry, through other things that could be more robust than kinsmen or kinswoman in their own nation state. So this is an excellent example of that. And I think there's a lot of other ways to explore his life through meta trends, and we'll definitely come back to these because there's another analogy in your book I really like about American culture absorbing local traditions, similar in the way that the Roman Empire absorbed uh, local gods and Ares becomes Mars. But let's first look at Bruce Lee's life and his early years, starting in Hong Kong and then coming to the United States. So can you describe his life and parts of his biography that you think are important for this discussion at hand? Yeah, I mean, I would start even before he was born. You know, the the lead up to his birth in San Francisco is a great example of how thoroughly interconnected the world was across the Pacific, even uh, beginning in the mid-1800s. So one of the things that I talk about in the book is uh, the trans-Pacific nature of the art form of Cantonese opera. Um, after the discovery of gold in California in 1849, you know, people flocked to San Francisco, Northern California from around the world, including would-be miners from China who began arriving as early as 1850, but certainly in larger numbers by 1852. And Cantonese opera follows right on their heels. The first Cantonese opera was, was performed in San Francisco in 1852. And it was a, it was an opera company that was bankrolled by merchants in China. And they saw the opportunity to ply their trade among the expatriates, among the emigres in California. And over time, Cantonese opera is performed almost constantly by touring companies, first in California, and then by permanent residential companies in California from the 1850s onwards. So Bruce Lee's father, Li Hoi Chuan, was a Cantonese opera performer. Many of the biographers of Bruce Lee refer to him as a Cantonese opera star. I don't know that he was so much of a star as a performer at this point. And so his father is on a tour of the United States with his opera company. Bruce's mother, who is pregnant at the time, accompanies her husband. And so he continues on to New York, but Grace, Bruce's mother, being very pregnant, stayed in San Francisco and gave birth there. So without this trans-Pacific network of travel and cultural exchange, Bruce Lee would have never been born in the United States. And of course, the, his birth in San Francisco is integral to his story because it conveyed upon him United States citizenship. 
as somebody who had been born within the territory of the United States. And that's what enables him to return to, to the U.S. later. So he was born, and then within three months, his parents returned to Hong Kong. And he was raised in Hong Kong as a young boy. He was raised in a Hong Kong that, as I mentioned earlier, is a colony of Great Britain in which Chinese people are, were second-class citizens. He was a bit of a, he was a very active young boy. He was extraordinarily intelligent. He loved to read, but he liked to be, he, he liked to read about things that interested him, not necessarily the things that were being taught in school at the time. And so he really did turn to other sorts of activities, some of them that made him in, incredibly popular. One was that he was an avid dancer of the cha-cha. And he and his younger brother actually won a cha-cha championship shortly before he came to the United States. Another thing that he did was he entered into the world of martial arts because in part, he had a group of friends who would get into mischief and sometimes needed to defend themselves from other young folks who were doing similar things. So he, you know, he, he was famous for getting into fights, for, for, for causing mischief. Oftentimes, he and his friends would taunt the British boys from the British school nearby until they could get them to come out and, and fight. And they would have their altercation in the street until somebody called out that the police were on their way. So he was a very, he was a very spirited young man. Now, one of the things that I think is very important for us to understand is that during this period, he, as a child, did not practice martial arts, you know, from the time he was, you know, five, five on. He only took up martial arts as a teenager. And he left Hong Kong at the age of 18. So Kung Fu was something that Bruce Lee studied very passionately. And particularly, the Wing Chun school of Kung Fu was what he studied. But he didn't study it for a lifetime. Far from it. By the time he left Hong Kong, he had probably studied Wing Chun for maybe three and maybe three, maybe four years. So a very short amount of time when you think about the martial arts, which can take a lifetime to master. I think one of the other things that if we get a chance to talk about, I'd love to explore a little bit more is the notion of martial arts and their development. Because Wing Chun is a, is a fascinating very fascinating school of Kung Fu. Yeah, let's talk about that first, how it develops. And then I'm also curious at the mainstream interest of martial arts from Asia in the United States in the 1960s. But let's look at its development first. Yeah, so like most martial arts, Wing Chun Kung Fu has, has an origin story that is steeped in legend and lore. The foundational story is that, that the art was developed by a nun, right? So already we know something important about how Wing Chun views itself. As a woman, the nun had to find ways to defend herself against opponents who are bigger and stronger. So it was never going to be a hard art that relied on overpowering opponents. Instead, it's an art that is very sensitive and attuned to movement and balance. And the ability to give when an opponent pushes forward 
and the ability to push forward when a when a opponent is giving. But Bruce learned his his Wing Chun very famously as as the series of movies starring Donnie Yen suggest from Yip Man. And Yip Man was a is a fascinating figure. He picked up his Wing Chun in Foshan, China, where he was born, and then came to Hong Kong in a wave of migrants after the Chinese Revolution of 1949. But Ip Man was an innovator. He was not a person who was going to simply pass down the Wing Chun that he had been taught himself. He was always looking for ways to improve. He was always looking for ways to test his craft. And he would tell his students, you know, go try this. And by this, by that, he meant, go try this out in the streets. Find out if what I'm teaching you is useful. And so Bruce and his cohorts were part of, of a martial arts community or scene in Hong Kong that would have test fights in parks or on uh, rooftops. And people were always representing their schools, right, to see whose kung fu was the strongest. But Bruce picked up this entrepreneurial, adaptive spirit from his Sifu, from his teacher, Iman. And his Sifu's demand that you have to test out everything for yourself and find out what is useful was something that Bruce continued on in his martial arts development. That comes to a quote of his, which we were discussing this before we went on air. Not sure if it's attributable to Bruce Lee or not. Uh, adapt what is useful, reject what is useless, and add what is uniquely your own. Whether or not it's true, it seems like it fits in with his story and how he is using elements of this martial art and approaching it as a very pragmatic thing to use. Before getting into his story, when he comes to the United States, he opens a martial arts studio. He becomes an actor. Here's something I'm curious about. My sense is that the 1960s is about the earliest time somebody like Bruce Lee could become a mainstream star. For better or for worse, on this podcast, I've dedicated two whole episodes to the John Wayne movie, The Conqueror, in which he plays Genghis Khan. As ridiculous as you can imagine that in your imagination, it's a hundred times more ridiculous. He has a Fu Manchu makeup, everything else, tape on his face to push back his eyes. So watch clips on YouTube, listener, if you don't believe what I'm saying is true. It is very true. But part of the reason he's cast at him, okay, John Wayne is a star, but there simply was an idea in the 1950s Hollywood that you would have a movie starring an Asian American. But by the time of Bruce Lee, that does become possible. It's not easy, but it happens and it happens more frequently over time. With the 1960s, with the Beatles embracing transcendental meditation, counterculture, accepting religious ideas, other influences from different Asian cultures. Is the 60s about the earliest time that you think Bruce Lee's story could have been possible? Yeah, absolutely, Scott. And you're not lying about... I've seen the stills of, <laughs> of John Wayne as Genghis Khan, and they're as offensive and ridiculous as you say. But yeah, the 60s absolutely is the first time that it would be possible for somebody like Bruce Lee to enter the national consciousness of the United States. But I would even push it a little bit further than that, which is, which would be to say um, the 1960s was, in fact, probably too early, right? We know from his story that he encountered enormous resistance in the United States and actually had to leave Hollywood because his, his ambitions were being stymied there. But some of the things that Bruce brings together in the 1960s 
is uh, that he has a, a real appetite for every cultural influence that he encounters. And so not only was he a philosophy major at the University of Washington while he attended there, he, he never graduated, but in his papers and his writings from that period, you can see him working out a syncretic, a, a hybrid philosophy that incorporates, uh, you know, many of the things he had read in Hong Kong before, right? He's quoting Lao Tzu, for example, and Chinese poetry. But he's also, he's also reading Western pop psychology. He writes about actualization and self-actualization. He's taking all of the influences around him and combining them. So, you know, when you say adapt what's useful and reject what's useless, he did this not only in the realm of the martial arts, but also in the realm of his way of thinking about how the world works. And forgive me, I, I forgot what your question was. <laughs> well, it was, uh, I, th I think you largely answered it of how early was his story possible in light of interest in the 1960s counterculture and things outside of traditional Western civilization. And, but so he's not only a recipient of these changes, he's also making these changes, as you noted, which I think is good to describe the next stage in his career. So how does he continue to grow as a martial artist and then eventually become an actor? Scott here. We're going to have a very short word from our sponsors. First, I want to give a shout out to all the great shows on the Parthenon Podcast Network, including History of the Papacy. You can find this and many other great shows at ParthenonPodcast.com. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry. Sorry. We're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No. Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. So when Bruce Lee leaves Hong Kong, he's trained in Wing Chun Kung Fu. He may have picked up a few forms from 
Uh, Wing Chun is a southern form of Kung Fu. He may have picked up a few forms of northern Kung Fu, but he was far from an expert. When he comes to the United States, he finds himself in a very different atmosphere in a couple ways. One is that he's, he's meeting up with martial artists, with fighters who are much larger than he is, much stronger than he is. Right? So he finds himself at a physical disadvantage. That's one thing. The other thing is that he finds himself facing martial artists who have very different types of training than he had ever encountered in Hong Kong. And the reason for that is that post-World War II, uh, the United States has sent its uh, armed forces out around the world. There are bases, uh, of course, throughout uh, Europe, but also throughout Asia. And so there's a, a whole generation of American soldiers, sailors, and airmen, airwomen, who are stationed out in Asia. They learn the local martial art wherever they happen to be, whether that's Taekwondo in, in Korea or Karate in Okinawa. And then they come back to the United States, right, after their deployments. And the explosion of interest in martial arts in the United States in the latter half of the 20th century is fundamentally driven by the influence of these, these soldiers and these veterans who go out into the world and then return. So any number of the key figures in martial arts in uh, the 1960s and the 1970s are actually uh, veterans, military veterans. Among them, Chuck Norris, who learned Hapkido while he was stationed in South Korea. So Bruce comes back to the United States where he's He's physically outmatched, and he's facing people with styles that he doesn't understand. And so he does two things. One is that he begins to remake his body. This is where that famous Bruce Lee physique comes to the fore, right? Impossibly ripped, right? Not an ounce of fat on his body. He does this through lifting weights, which he had never done before, and aerobic training. He runs three miles a day, sometimes six miles a day, which again, he had never done before. So he increases his fitness, his strength. The other thing he does though, is that he studies every martial artist that he encounters and every martial art that he can get his hands on carefully, assiduously, thoughtfully. And he assesses each one. He says, you know, these kinds of moves I find to be useful. These are kind of decorative. So we should, I should not preserve those in my own martial art. So one example of this is, is kicking. In Wing Chun, kicking really isn't super emphasized. And for the most part, kicks are kept pretty low, right? It's none of the beautiful high kicks that you see in something like Taekwondo, for example. So Bruce is in Seattle and he goes to a a competition and he sees a karate practitioner executing these beautiful and powerful high kicks. And he realizes that that's a potential weapon that he doesn't have in his repertoire. And so he starts to, to practice the high kicks. He's works on his limberness and his flexibility. And it's not that Bruce Lee was, you know, like particularly gifted in terms of being limber and flexible. It's that he develops that through hard work and practice and repetition. So 
one of his buddies talks about the fact that there was a vent at the school that they were attending that was about seven feet high. And, you know, Bruce at the beginning tried to kick at it and could get nowhere near, could barely get his leg, you know, higher than his, than his waist. But over the next few months, he kept going and kept going until he could execute a high kick and hit, hit a vent seven feet above, above the ground. And so he also starts to train a very, in Seattle, a very motley crew of people who have trained in all sorts of different martial arts, including Japanese and Filipino and Western martial arts. And he's, uh, you know, all his students all say, Bruce didn't like to teach that much. He wasn't that interested in being a teacher, but what he liked to do was have students around so that he could use them as training devices for himself. And so these, you know, the students learn, of course, by being used as, as training devices. But what he would say is like, do this move, right? Do this move and I'm going to watch and then I'm going to engage and I'm going to find out where you're vulnerable while you're doing that move. And so during this period in the 1960s, he's developing his martial arts. He eventually comes to reject the idea that there is any such thing as one pure martial art, right? He's, he famously develops Jeet Kune Do, his own martial art that is the style of being no style so that it can confront any style. And this is his, uh, his MO, his modus operandi. He's always looking around him, finding the influences and combining them. So while he's on in the midst of this journey of martial arts discovery, he also returns to a, another childhood passion of his, which is that he had been an actor in Hong Kong as a child, had been in 18 or, or 20 films in Hong Kong. So he, he decides that he's contacted by a, a producer who's heard about him and his martial arts prowess and asked him to come in for a screen test. And he screen tests for a role of Charlie Chan's number one son. Before getting into his influence on Hollywood and his emergence as a cultural icon, I suppose this is as good a time any to mention his martial arts prowess, just because that's been part of the whole discussion about him as a person that for decades has simmered among you know martial arts fanboys on who would win between Bruce Lee and Muhammad Ali. I've seen very good faith arguments saying that he would win against him or prime Mike Tyson due to his incredible speed and power to weight ratio and targeting pressure points. And of course, this debate has been entirely reignited in 2019 with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, where it's portrayed in this fictionalized telling of Hollywood that Bruce Lee was a lot more talk than he was walk and a stuntman is basically able to neutralize him because Bruce Lee can talk a big talk about how he could take out Muhammad Ali if he wanted to. He's restrained by the rules of combat, but he could take out anyone. He's cocky. And this is this portrayal of him is partly by Quentin Tarantino claiming that he had read about stuntmen who hated working with Lee because he really didn't know how to hold back. He would not be a team player. He would exert force on people who are just trying to do a visual art almost sounds like a modern day Steven Seagal. So well, without getting too far into the whole internet fanboy debate about who would win Bruce Lee versus Godzilla or all the nonsense you can get into there in uh, subreddits, how good was Bruce Lee as a martial artist? Well, it's a really good question and it's a hard one to answer because he was not a combat martial artist, right? I mean, in his lifetime, he did not compete 
in tournaments that have been recorded that we can see. But instead, he gave exhibitions. We have video footage to show his speed, his power, but not under combat conditions. So first of all, the question of who can beat up whom is always a question about under what conditions. So I think that, you know, the question of like, who would win in a fight between Bruce Lee and Muhammad Ali, you know, it depends on, on lots of things. You, you might ask yourself the question, are we talking about boxing? Are we going to allow kicks? Are we going to be in a, in a ring with uh, three minute rounds? Uh, is it, are we wearing boxing gloves or can we do eye pokes? You know, so all of those things I think are constraints on fighting. Bruce Lee himself never claimed that he could beat Muhammad Ali. He was a great fan of the greatest. He believed that, you know, that Muhammad Ali would probably eventually have his say in a fight with Bruce because he was so much bigger and so much stronger. So, you know, this idea that Quentin Tarantino says that Bruce bragged that he could beat up Muhammad Ali was, is just not factually supported. In fact, Bruce got footage of Muhammad Ali and played it and shadow boxed with it because he so wanted to absorb the wisdom, the knowledge, and the power that Muhammad Ali was able to, to muster. I have to think that Bruce would have been a very effective mixed martial artist. One of his great strengths was his refusal to get pinned down to any one style. And so he, you know, he did what was necessary. He, he said, you know, if, if whatever it is that you learn, it doesn't matter from whom you learned it, right? There's no such thing as Chinese way of fighting, a Japanese way of fighting. They're simply humans engaged in combat. One of the things he mentions in a TV show called Longstreet, which was written by Sterling Siliphant, who was his student, and therefore writes very Bruce-like philosophy into the dialogue, into the show. And he says, you know, basically, bite, kick, gouge eyes. When you're in a life and death situation, you do what you do to have to survive. And so under those circumstances, I think that uh, he would be a formidable uh, opponent, not one that many people would want to take on. Hey everyone, Scott here. One more brief word from our sponsors. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? 
No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. There's another part of. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood that is more factually sourced, and that's Bruce Lee's involvement in Hollywood as a fight instructor, which he does in the Sharon Tate movie, The Wrecking Crew. And I'm curious about his influence on Hollywood before and after he becomes a movie star. And if you look at fight choreography in Hollywood, let's say the Golden Age and Westerns in the 1950s, early 1960s, there might be punching and boxing that happens, but a lot of it if you get down to it, is Queensberry rules, where people are punching each other. Some of it is not spectacular at all. Perhaps the most famous version of this is in the original Star Trek when Captain Kirk is fighting the Gorn, and it's incredibly slow. At some point, a guy in a rubber suit is waving his fake claws over Captain Kirk. He ducks and then puts both hands together in a ball and hits him in the back. It looks like the whole thing is in slow motion or underwater. Compared to how it evolves now in Hollywood, when everything is tightly choreographed, everything is influenced by martial arts. Think of John Wick movies and things of the nature. So could you tell me about Bruce Lee's influence even before he's a movie star? He's a fight choreography and then after. Yeah, absolutely. And before we get too far down that road, I should also directly answer your question about whether Bruce Lee would beat up an aging stunt person. Yes. Oh, yes. There's no question about that, right? <laughs> that was, it. it was a ludicrous theme and it, it stretched the imagination to the breaking point. But yeah, you know, so the first time that Bruce fights on camera in Hollywood is in the Green Hornet. And he's cast as the sidekick, of course, to the white Green Hornet. But what you see is that he brings an incredibly fresh and different sensibility and aesthetic around fighting than has ever been seen before. You think about like the contemporary shows of the time, right? The Green Hornet was made by the same producer who made Batman. And if you think about like the Batman fights, right? Batman is supposed to be a superhero. So we're supposed to think that he's, you know, like physically fit and that these fights are a representation of prowess and they are painfully slow to watch. You can see Kapow, Kapow, right. But before Kapow, a big long windup and a fist flying in a big giant circle through the air before it finally lands in the blam, right? So Bruce on screen dispenses with all of that, right? He doesn't really use Wing Chun techniques per se, but he uses very direct lines of attack. So his, you know, his punches are straight and to the place that they need to be. They're not like, taking this meandering route through space to get to the opponent's face. And this was, this was <laughs> electrifying. Nobody had ever seen this kind of fighting on U.S. television before. People are writing in to the studio, sending them fan mail. They're actually sending letters and asking questions 
to Black Belt Magazine as well. Who is this? How is he trained? What is his belt level? And the editors of Black Belt actually say, this is Bruce Lee. We've seen him in exhibitions. He's a Kung Fu artist. There are no belts in Kung Fu. You know, people are saying, is this, is this real what he's doing on television? So it really is a watershed moment in Hollywood in terms of fight choreography. And as you mentioned, he goes on to be a fight choreographer, a, a stunt director. He works with, a, you know, a number of, of big stars, including Steve McQueen. He says at one point that uh, Dean Martin is just too drunk to be, ever be a good fighter. But on the other hand, you know, James Coburn and Steve McQueen, he thought were, had real potential because of their willingness to sacrifice, their willingness to work hard and not quit when the going got tough. And, you know, today, right, I think, as you suggested, fight choreography is 180 degrees different from what it was in the 1950s and the 1960s. And I think that we can attribute that to the influence that Bruce Lee had, not just him personally, but the doors that he was able to open for other martial artists, and particularly martial artists who were trained in Asian styles, right, to be able to convey their aesthetic of fighting on the big screen. And nowadays, right, you got to have moves. It's not enough to just like, you know, walk in and, and throw a haymaker. In many movies, right, the fight choreography is so tight and so detailed that you can actually see elements from different styles of martial arts being brought in. One thing that many people like to say is that, you know, Bruce Lee was the original mixed martial artist. And it's true, right? He was intermixing martial arts far before that was popular or even, you know, sort of standard because that's, that's the standard today. People understand that different styles need to be intermixed in order to be effective. But one of the things that I do want to point out here is that in Game of Death, which is really a, a horrific film because it was patched together after his death. But when in the famous scene where the hero, Bruce, takes on Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, seven foot two basketball player in, in this in Game of Death. He's Hakeem, a blind giant. But in this film, Bruce adopts a different style on every level of the pagoda as he progresses up towards Hakeem. And when he finally beats, confronts and kills Hakeem, it's by taking him to the ground. So he's grappling. And that's, you know, that's the first time we've seen extensive use of grappling in a Bruce Lee film. And that's an example of his ability to always say, in this situation, there's something I have, I have to be able to do something to adapt to the situation. When my opponent is seven feet tall, I have to chop him down to size. And so all of those things suggest, as we were talking about previously, that he would be a, a formidable opponent under the right circumstances. But to get back to your question, there's about his influence after being a movie star. He opened up a world. He opened up an entire universe of styles. And the martial artists who used those styles were able to walk into Hollywood as stunt directors, as fight choreographers. And so today, when you see Tom Cruise at Mission Impossible or, or uh, Jason Bourne or any of, or John Wick for that matter, what you see is the global influence of Bruce Lee only being accelerated today. Enter the Dragon was a Big Bang moment, and it makes him a cultural icon 
the after effects are still being felt in 1970s and 1980s B-movie martial arts films, the multi-billion dollar mall ninja industry, if you want a very, very dull katana sword and uh, a bunch of ridiculous tactical weapons that don't actually work in any way, shape or form. Bruce Lee, although would never take credit for any of that, is in some ways connected to it. But it's this whole industry of martial arts that in many ways all leads back to him. So that's a very, very broad question. What is the influence he has on American culture after Enter the Dragon, after he becomes this international icon following his death, too, of course? So Bruce Lee died in 1973. Here we are, 49 years later, and we're still talking about him. Bruce Lee is one of those figures around the world that you could walk into almost any village in any country, in any region, with wearing a Bruce Lee t-shirt and people would recognize his face. He's entered that pantheon of global superstars. And I would say that, you know, Muhammad Ali would be another one of those. His influence continues to be vast. You know, we, we see him today in video games. We see him in documentaries. We see him in advertisements. His image still carries weight and substance. So what's the the legacy of Bruce Lee? Well, I think one of the first things we can take away is that Bruce Lee represents the triumph of the underdog. He was a five foot seven, 130 pound Chinese man trying to make it in a racist Hollywood. Odds pretty slim, but he finds a way around, right? Rather than confronting the bamboo ceiling head on, He returns to Hong Kong, where he becomes the biggest star in all of Asia, and then finally begins to attract the attention in Hollywood that had not come his way because Hollywood directors and producers were too blind to see his power, his charisma, his talent. And that ability of the little guy to triumph with nothing other than his hands and his feet and his brains and his heart. I think it's something that continues to draw people into Bruce Lee as a hero, as as a role model, as someone to look to for inspiration. Now, it's also true that he was impossibly handsome and his physique is impossible to, to reproduce. So he was physically beautiful as well. And I think that, you know, for especially for Asian American men, that's a powerful legacy, right? Asian American men are not portrayed as masculine or as desirable. And so to see somebody like him on the, you know, on the biggest stages of the world as, as a hero, not a sidekick, but as a central character protagonist in his own story is inspiring as well. And finally, one of the things that I think we can take away from Bruce Lee is not only was he the underdog himself, but he, in his films, always took on support for the underdog, for the weak, for the powerless, for the people who were not able to stand up for themselves. And he's the one who does that, again, with his hands and his feet. And what that suggests to us is that struggle for justice and equity and equality and power in our world doesn't have to just be something that you can only engage in when you are, you know, the big dog on the block, it's something that all of us can do with whatever minimal tools and whatever minimal power we have 
around us, as long as we do as Bruce Lee did, which was to look around, find allies and influences to incorporate into our own struggles as we try to move towards a better world. Well, there's a lot in his story, and we were only able to scratch the surface. And for listeners who want to look at this in a lot more depth, the name of Daryl's book is Like Water, A Cultural History of Bruce Lee. Daryl, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much, Scott. It's been a pleasure. All right. That is it for today. If you would like to see show notes for this episode, along with all my others, go to parthenonpodcast.com. That's the name of the podcast network that I'm a part of along with James Early's Key Battles of American History, Steve Guerra's Beyond the Big Screen and History of the Papacy, and other great history shows as well. If you'd like to support History Unplugged, the two easiest ways to do so are to subscribe to the show on the podcast player of your choice and leave a review. The second way is to join our membership program, and if you do so, you'll get completely ad-free episodes of the entire back catalog, which is 600 episodes and growing. Just go to patreon.com slash unplugged. Thanks for listening, and see you next time. You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. This episode is brought to you by Calitrin. Text the word UNPLUGGED to 30605 and they'll send you a link to a wonderful product that can help you finally succeed in shedding that extra weight. I took Calitrin for several weeks last year and I felt great in several ways. I felt stronger, my workouts felt easier, I slept better, I was noticeably trimmer, there was no downside. Text the word UNPLUGGED to 30605 right now to see this week's special offer on Calitrin. Calitrin contains collagen, the most abundant protein naturally occurring in the human body, which decreases as we age. Taking Calitrin promotes better sleep, more energy, less joint pain, and best of all, weight loss. Calitrin has an 86% success rate with their 90-day supply, and this week, take advantage of my special offer. Buy the 90-day supply and get an extra month free, plus free shipping. Ordering is easy. Just text the word UNPLUGGED to 30605, and I'll send you a link to the special offer. Again, text UNPLUGGED to 30605.